Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about how to help your child with anxiety or OCD transition to college. That can be, not always, but it can be a pretty hard transition for a lot of kids, regardless of whether they have anxiety or OCD. But when you add anxiety or OCD to the mix, it can be challenging for lots of different reasons. So in this episode, I want to go over some of the the ways that it can be challenging and I want to talk about the early stages of helping them with the transition as you're you know, preparing, looking at colleges, the initial steps towards college, which in and of itself can be overwhelming. And then what do you do once you know, you're preparing them to go? And what do you do when they are actually there? So before we get started, I do want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They are available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is a right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. And NoCD is actually really great when we're talking about college because it's all virtual therapy. And so if you are concerned and you want, we're going to talk about finding therapists and stuff. But I just want to mention that that's actually a really nice thing to have or an option to have is a virtual therapist that is trained in treating OCD that your child or teenager or young adult actually can access no matter where they are. I also want to mention that my free series self-care for parents raising kids with anxiety or OCD is coming up. Let me see. I think so I batch these because we are traveling a lot this summer. So I'm like way ahead. (laughs) So sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, what day is this coming out? But it will actually be coming out before the series starts. And so this should be coming out July 25th, if you're listening to this in real time. And the series will start next week, next Thursday. And you can watch the videos at any time during the series. It is about a week and a half long. And so you can sign up at atparentingsurvivalseries.com and take advantage of it. It's free. And I go in depth. I actually do like a pop-up Facebook group just for the series. And I create a new one every single time. And so I dive deeper into the videos. The videos are like on demand. So when you sign up, we'll email you the videos when they get released. There's three of them in total. They're only 30 minutes each. And then we'll have like a deeper discussion about it in that temporary Facebook group. And I teach more in depth and I answer your questions. And so it's a really great time to carve out to say, I'm going to commit this time to focus on myself. And when I say self-care, and I have teetered with the idea of changing the the name of the series because it's something I do twice a year, every year. But you know, I can't really think of anything else other than self-care. But it really is more like mindset, your support system, your physical health, your mental health. It's a lot of different things. The perceptions that we have and that we carry, the stories we tell ourselves when we're raising a child with anxiety or OCD have a huge impact in how we show up. And so I go into all of that. And so it's definitely not your typical self-care series. So join me at atparentingsurvivalseries.com if you've taken it before. 
You can take it again. I have many people have taken it multiple times because it's just like a reminder. It's like an annual reminder or a biannual reminder of how to shift your mindset, how to take care of yourself. Because if you're not doing okay, which a lot of us aren't, your child's not going to be doing well either. That's just common sense. So hope to see you over there for that. Let's dive into this topic today. So I have had a lot of people request that I do this topic. And I feel like, I was going to say, I feel like it was my 19-year-old who gave me this idea, but I think she gave me a different topic idea. And then I thought about her. (laughs) And I've had a lot of parents in the AT parenting community ask me questions about transitioning to college. And so I thought, it's such a good topic. I have done transitions in general, but I haven't done one specific to college, which is actually very specific because there's a lot of things that show up that are very specific to preparing for college and then actually going to college. So let's dive into it. So I'm going to first start talking about the early stages. So this is they're in high school and they have to think about where they want to go to college, British people, university. It is university sometimes here in America too, but it's just semantics. And the overwhelm can happen pretty early on. So the first step we want to look at is, are they ready to go? Which sometimes we may not want to really face that question. What kind of work needs to be done in order to prepare them to go? If my child can't even leave the house, is it practical that they're going to be ready to go to college the next year? Not where they currently are, right? And so we have to do steps to get them prepared if their anxiety or OCD is not under control to get them to that place because we don't want to set them up for failure or give them false hope when it's clear that there's no way they can go. And so that might be really working on the OCD. It might be going to a treatment center if their OCD is incapacitating where they're not able to function. It is really helpful to think about intensive treatment at this stage if your child is immobilized. And so they're not able to get some of their basic life skills done. They're not able to leave the house or they're not able to eat or they're not able to like interact. They're not, a- they're not able to function. Once they turn 18, you have very little say or you have no say in their treatment options. You have a lot more say when they are a minor. And so sometimes people are humming and hawing whether they want to put their kids into intensive treatment, whether that is an intensive outpatient program, an IOP, or an inpatient program. They have inpatient programs for OCD and anxiety at Rogers Memorial Hospital all over the country, at in McLean, in uh, Boston and Houston. And so there are lots of really good programs that would require a child to actually go and live there for 30 to 90 days. And sometimes doing that when they're in high school is so important to prepare them. But that's not what this episode is about. But I do feel like that is something to mention. With And I'm going to use my daughter a bit as an example. I have a 19-year-old. And when she was junior, senior, she was not immobilized by her anxiety or OCD. But every step was a bit of a challenge. And so her driving was a challenge. She didn't want to drive. She was anxious about driving. And so we had to put a lot of energy into empowering her, motivating her. Do you think I have a podcast on driving or it might've been a YouTube video? I think it's a YouTube video on how to help kids who are anxious to drive. You can check out my YouTube channel. If you just go to youtube.com slash at Natasha Daniels, OCD therapist, You can actually search my channel. You know, if you go to the search button on top and you can find that YouTube video, but thinking about what things do they need to do in order to be independent, if they're going to be moving out of your home to live in call, to live at college, what things are they going to need? And so for the 
two years leading up to my daughter's going to college, I started to pull back a lot. I started to have her make phone calls to, you know, rectify situations that weren't going right. Or I had to really coax her into getting a job her junior, senior year. And so there was a lot of role-playing for her interview. I actually, I went to Panera Bread, like every, my husband and I went to Panera Bread every Sunday. It was kind of like our date breakfast, I guess. We'd do that. And then we'd go to Walmart to grocery shop. And it was just like our Sunday routine. So the manager like got to know us because she kept seeing us all the time. And then we saw a little table with applications for employment. And we went up to her and we just said, oh, you're looking for somebody. We have a 16-year-old. <laughs> and so when I went home, my daughter was not excited about it. She had applied to lots of places, but she applied online. And I think that there's this like, there's this ease in our culture today, which helps our anxious kids, but it also hurts them where they can feel like they're doing something, but they really aren't doing something. And so it's very easy to apply for all these jobs online and never have to meet face-to-face, never have to fill out an application in person, never have to ask for the manager, all the things that I did when I was a kid that build up your resiliency and your life skills. And most of the time, those applications are never seen. You never get a job by just submitting it online. You have to kind of follow up. So because we knew the manager, there was a little bit more coaxing. She actually did get the job and she worked there for a year. And so that was a great life skill thing because she was able to interact and learn how to deal with people directly. So ask yourself, what kind of independence do I need to foster if your child is junior or senior, 16, 17 years old, and you're preparing them? It's never too soon to start to prepare them for like ancillary issues, like independence. Can I do my own laundry? Can I cook some basic food? I failed on the cooking part. I just never, she was such a messy kid. (laughs) So I did fail on that part because she is back from college, just side note uh, for the summer. And so she's going into her uh, sophomore year and I am having her cook with me every dinner. She's much more mature. I am much more mature. (laughs) That sounds so stupid, but I am much more calmer than I ever been because I've been working on it for the last two years. And so I can teach her things. And I realize, holy cow, she really doesn't have a good concept of how to do it, like turn on the oven. So big fail. Because my 11-year-old, I realized I had failed my 19-year-old. So I have been working on that area better. And so my 11 and 13-year-old, they can turn on the oven. They can get their own food out. Like they, my daughter can bake a cake. Like she's very proficient in the, in the kitchen. But asking yourself these things can be really helpful. Not that they're necessarily going to have to cook for themselves right away, but those things. Can they clean their own bathroom? Because they're going to have to clean their bathroom when they're in college. And that is another thing that you want to start to address if your child has anxiety or OCD issues around certain life skills. Because we talk about how is this going to impact other people? And I'll give you an example. Uh, My daughter, who's 11, has discussed themes around OCD. And this summer, I'm on like, an eating program. So I don't eat what I cook. And so I said to my kids, look, I am making you dinner and I'm not eating it. And I'm not doing any dishes because I'm not eating. I'm eating out of like a container. And so it only makes sense that you guys rotate and do your own dishes. So help me out. I'm doing you. I'm making you dinner. I don't want to make dinner. I hate cooking actually. And so my youngest has discussed issues. And so in the past, she hasn't had to do the dishes. I'll give her other chores. And we do exposures around disgust but we've worked on it and I feel like it's much more manageable. And so we had a discussion about when you are in college and you live in a, you know, an apartment or something, you're going to have to do the dishes. Like your roommates aren't going to care that you have discussed themes around OCD. And so you can earn five points for doing 
And it's only, she can put, she can take out, she can't put in. And so like, you're going to have to do both. Like your roommates aren't going to be understanding. Same thing with the bathroom, right? So bringing that awareness to your child, if they have OCD issues around the bathroom or anything that you can see where roommates would have a problem with their compulsions or with their behavior, it might be time to have the discussion to say, I love you and we accommodate this, or I love you and we tolerate this, (laughs) but your roommates won't. And even if you tell them you have OCD and this is, you know, because of this, they're not going to tolerate that. And I, I don't want you to have a rough time because of that. So let's, maybe it's a good idea, right? We never want to tell them what to do, but maybe it's a good idea that we start working on it so that by the time you go to college, it won't be as big of a deal or it won't be as, you know, overwhelming for people around you. And I've had the discussion with my 11 year old. I said, you're going to have to do the dish. And luckily she sees her 19 year old sister and they, you know, had roommates and issues and debates about the dishes, you know, cause that's just how it goes. Her dorm actually was more of like an apartment, which was actually quite lucky. And they did have like their own kitchen. So they had to do the dishes and they had to do their own cleaning. And so my 11 year old has seen the bickering and saw what happened. And so she's not happy about it, but she is starting to do it. And so if she starts working on it at 11 and it's part of her exposure, it's part of what she has to do, hopefully she'll be ready when she's 18. So those are just some examples, but what is it for your child? You know, what is the anxiety or OCD that's very big that is going to travel with them that might impede their ability to function? Where is their lack of independence that you can foster right now? Okay. Now moving into college itself, there can be an overwhelm. And some of the things I'm going to talk about may resonate and some of them may not be an issue with your child. So I'm going to just try to cover all of it. I know for my daughter, the idea of picking a college, just even very basic things was too overwhelming because she's always had a fear of growing up and college was super scary. And so she didn't want to look for colleges. She didn't want to like, I would say, you know, I'd send her links and I would say, I want you to just start thinking about which colleges you're interested in. And she wouldn't do it. And I didn't want to push her because I wanted to like honor her pace. But mentally in my head, I had a deadline of if she's not talking about college by the time she is a senior, then I'm going to have to start doing a little bit more pushing or or even helping. Helping is probably the better word. And so you want to mentally have some guideline of when of when you want things done. And I think it's important to recognize whatever we verbalize to our kids, we have to be very careful because we don't want to add to the pressure. So if we're constantly saying, you need to, right? That's a terrible beginning of a sentence. You need to. Um, you need to start looking for colleges. You need to start thinking about this. You need to start checking in scholarships. You need to start so overwhelming. And so instead, we might want to write on our calendar. I literally write on my calendar sometimes things that I need to bring up with my kids and with her, especially I put it in my calendar for the beginning of her senior year, start picking out colleges. And that's because they're dealing with finals. They're dealing with the stress of being, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. And the idea of the college stuff can be overwhelming. And they're getting a lot of pressure at school, depending on where they go, as far as picking it and being important and like all that stuff. So she had not picked anything out senior year. (laughs) And I realized it will never actually happen. And so instead of getting angry and pressuring her more, it's okay for us to be part of this process. And so initially I made a spreadsheet for her (laughs) because I am so type A. I made a spreadsheet and it was like college, cost. I don't remember what I was on the spreadsheet, probably like location, pros and cons or whatever requirements to submit. I made her a spreadsheet and I said, 
here's a spreadsheet. Just go in and you can start listing out which colleges you want and whatever. And I gave some space, wrote it on my calendar to go circle back and check in on that. And it never got done. I don't know, mom. I just can't. I don't know. I So then I took the next step and I would send her links to different colleges. Here's one. Here's another one. Here's the top 10 best art schools. So she wanted to go and get her bachelor's in fine arts. And so, you know, she's, she's an artist and she wants to work in, she wants to do like, well, she didn't really know what she wanted to do senior year, but it's, it's been fleshed out, but she really likes concept art, doing concept art for movies or gaming design. She's crazy talented. So, but she has a lot of anxiety. And so I would send her these top 10 schools and that helped narrow it down for her. Like these are the top 10 art schools. You want to look at these and see which ones. And then still a little overwhelming. And so then we started to pencil in discussions. I said, how about we just talk about this once a week? What day would be good for you? What time would be good for you? And so that helps so that it's not just, she's bombarded all the time with these questions. It's like, she knows Sunday afternoon, we're going to go out to Starbucks and we're going to just talk about this. And then I won't talk about it the rest of the week unless she wants to bring it up. That can give them a sense of control. And so we would talk about it. And then eventually I started going through the colleges. You don't want to do too much for them because we want them to collaborate and we want them to make their own choice. And so when I started to show her colleges and say, oh, there is this college and there's this one. This one is in Rhode Island. This one is in California. These are the things that we might want to look at. How far away do you want to be? I had to really break it down. She's a highly intelligent person, but it's so overwhelming. So breaking it down in small steps can be really helpful. So helping your child say, I want to look at location. I want to look at maybe the size of the college. How competitive is it as far as my stress level? So those components are really important. And so we narrowed it down and we realized that she wanted to go to a small college and she didn't want to be too far away. We talked about the logistics of being on the East Coast while we're in Arizona, that she would have to get on a plane to come see us, that bringing her stuff would be hard. If she was you know, having a struggle, it would be hard for me to, to get to her in a pinch. And so talk to your child about the practical things, the pragmatics of all of those things. Because a lot of times they're not thinking about those things. They haven't thought about those things. They're just thinking about the competitiveness or what school they want to go to. And they forget to think about the location. And one thing that I talked about with my daughter is, at least in the United States, often where you go to college is where you make connections. And so would you want to settle down in there? Because that's where you're going to make your connections. So if you're on the East Coast, more likely than not, you're going to have an internship on the East Coast and your connections are going to be on the East Coast. If you're on the West Coast and you want to be close to LA and you want to be close to the movie industry, does it make more sense to be on the West Coast? And so those all came into her decision. So then it was easier for her to say, I want this particular college, which she was able to narrow down. And then the stress was was less because that decision had been made. The other thing besides kind of helping them in the early stages is finding out their core fears around going to college. Because if you can address the core fear, not the overall overwhelm, but specifically what is the core fear? then you're able to reframe some of those cognitive distortions. You're able to address them. You're able to speak to them based on the decision that they make as far as what college as well. So I'll give you a couple of common core fears. If you're like wondering, "Hmm, I wonder what they could be. And, And the way that you would find this out, like the way that I would talk to my daughter, I'd say like, what's the scariest part about going to college? And she would start to talk about it. And then it would come up. If you were in 
Rhode Island, what would be the scariest part about that? Um, if you're in California. So it might be a multiple conversation process to find out what is the scariest part of going to college. But when we know what that is, we can really prepare them specifically addressing that core fear. Yes, all of it can be overwhelming and all of it can be scary. But when you have anxiety or OCD, there, there tends to be some very specific core fears. So some common ones, some very big general ones are growing up in general. Like, I don't want to grow up. My daughter had that. Like The older she got, the more anxious she got because she, she didn't want to be an adult. My 11-year-old has that too a little bit. She's so afraid of being an adult. And so we address, what does it mean to, be grow, to grow up? What is the scariest part about being a grown-up? Because that's actually not the core fear. It's below the core fear. Yes, growing up is the core fear, but then what's deeper? What does it mean to grow up? It means you have more responsibility, more bills. It means you're closer to dying. What is it? Because it could be different for each person. The next one could be driving. That's a common one, actually. I don't want to go to college because I don't, I don't want to bring a car. I don't want to drive. And so that's scary. It could be academics. I don't want to handle the pressure. It's going to be so hard in college. Uh, it could be social. I don't want to meet new people. It's so scary. You know, what if they reject me? What if I have nobody? It could be logistics. Like, I don't know how I'm going to find my way around or how I'm going to find my classes or how I'm going to understand a new city. It could be being far from home. What if I have an emergency? What if I need you? You're not there. It could be about their mental health. Like, what if my OCD is, you know, gets out, out of control? What if I can't leave my dorm room? Or what if my anxiety, what if I have panic attacks? What if anything around their anxiety or OCD. What if I can't reach my therapist? What if I don't get a new therapist? What if I can't function? So those are some really common ones. They're not exclusive. It could be really literally anything, obviously. But when we know those core fears, then we can address them. With growing up, I've I've reframed that with my kids. And I've said, growing up actually was liberating for me. <laughs> I mean, I had a rough childhood, not as rough as some other people, but not as good as others. And the idea of making my own choices and not being the victim of my parents' choices was liberating for me. But my kids don't experience that because luckily, besides you know having their dad die, which is horrible, they've had a lot of stability minus that major earthquake. But the fear of growing up is, I don't want to have to deal with all of the burden. I'm trying to think. I feel like for my daughter, the fear of growing up might be about death, the closer she is to death. But for my older daughter, it was more like responsibility and bills. And so a lot of it has been, um, you don't have to do it yourself. Like just because you're a grown up doesn't mean that I disappear. Like I'm here to support you. You can get my advice, my suggestions. I'm here to guide you. The beautiful thing about a parent-child relationship is it continues into adulthood. And so it's baby steps because she said, well, I don't know how to get a credit card and I won't know how to get a car loan. I won't know how to buy a car. And it's like, I didn't either, right? And I didn't have parents who actually guided me in those things. but. You take it one small step at a time and then you learn. So my point is I'm reframing the anxiety and I'm, I'm helping her feel better about it. Driving, working on driving, or telling them, you know, you don't need to drive. A lot of colleges, you don't need to drive. They have shuttles and buses and all sorts of things. Academics, again, it's a reframe. And depending on your experience, I loved college because I loved being able to focus on the subjects I wanted to learn. And so it was so, to me, college was 10 times easier than high school. Maybe not for you. It just depends. But reframing that of you get to pick what classes you want. You get to drop what classes you don't want. You get to drop what professors you don't want. You have a lot more freedom. So helping reframe that as well. Working on meeting new people and reframing that. I'm not going to go through each one of these, but you get the point. Each one of those 
is something that you can help build their skills towards and reframe their anxious thoughts around. Okay, after the break, I want to talk about what do we do when we know where they're going, they're preparing to go, and when they get there. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's time we put help directly in our kids' hands. Introducing Crushing OCD Course for Kids and Teens. It was way more helpful than all the other therapy we've ever done because we didn't really know what to do. So we weren't really doing it before. So the course helped to figure out what the exposures are and how to do them. We're not in therapy and find it really hard um, to find an ERP trained therapist here. Um, So we're currently with like the public health service, but again, they don't seem to be trained in ERP. It's filled that gap that we don't have that was desperately needed. This was really well timed for us to use between therapists and to help us like start get off to a good start with this new practice. It was easy to use. Um, I was able to do it from my phone or also on the computer. There's different ages, you know, so there were younger kids, there were teenagers. And um, so that was really nice too, to have a variety of ages where it wasn't just geared towards younger kids or older kids. It was a nice variety. It's helpful for our kids to hear it from this like third party as opposed to just us saying it. I really like the offense and defense method. I love working on poking at OCD while it's sleeping. It makes it a little bit easier to do and it's kind of fun. (laughs) I'm planning on using it to work on my uh, fear of like holding or touching batteries and stuff like that. So it was really helpful and I think a lot of other kids would like it. I thought that I was like the only one who had worrying about the weather and stuff. And then there was somebody else on there who worried about the same thing, which was really helpful. Seems less scary to work on stuff now that I've watched this class and I'm more interested to work on it. I like trying to do more exposures still and going to, before I wasn't, I just didn't want to do them. I've worked on some of my bigger compulsions and been successful. I realized it was helpful to do like the exposures before it was like really, really hard. It's still hard, but it's helpful to know that I need to do them. Before there would be a lot of battles about it. So it is definitely less loggerheads. Really, really good course and super helpful. Definitely would recommend this. It's really easy to follow. It's nice bite-sized videos. I really like the worksheets that go along with it, and I think it's really helpful. To learn more about this course and register your child or teen, go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. All right, welcome back. So now your child knows exactly where they're going, and maybe they're preparing to go. What do you do with that? There's a lot of stuff to do before they get there. And so the first thing we want to kind of make sure is that they have a support system where they're going. And so If they're in therapy, you want to talk to the therapist and say, can you see my child when they're in college? So if you're going to a different state, if you're in the United States, that can be tricky because therapists are licensed in particular states. And so it depends on the therapist, whether they will feel like your permanent residence is still, you know, in my state. And so I can still treat you. I think every therapist might view that differently. So you definitely want to discuss it with a therapist. The other thing is you want to, you can look at SciPact. So SciPact is something kind of came out of COVID where there are states that there's reciprocity. And so, you know, people in Arizona, like can see people in Georgia. And so there are, there's a list of states. You can just look up SciPact, P-S-Y, PACT, or talk to your therapist and see if 
your state is inside packed. Because if it is, then all the other states that are in there, you can see therapists, you can see clients through, which is very, very, very nice and helpful. So setting up their therapy is important. If they are not in therapy yet, it might be really good to set them up now so they have an established relationship moving forward. If they are in a state that is part of SIPACT, let me look up the website for you. Hold on a second. All right. I just wanted to help you. So if you look up PSYPACT.org, SIPACT, on that website, there is a list of all the states that are involved in SIPACT. It's actually a bit confusing on their website. So if you go to the top of that website at sitepact.org and you go to SIPACT map and states, click that, then there is a list of all the states that are involved. Or you can just go to sitepact.org. Well, I'm not going to give it to you because it's so long. But yeah, just go up to the top and it says authorized to practice. And then you scroll down on that menu and then you go to the SIPACT maps slash states and it will list all the current states that do reciprocity. So there's a lot of them actually. And so that can be really helpful because what I would recommend if your child is open to therapy and they're either currently not in therapy or you want to transfer, it would be really smart to get a therapist in the state where your child's going to school if they're in the United States. This is United States specific issue. And so if they are, let's say your child is going to school in Maine and you live in Colorado, well, Colorado and Maine are both in SIPAC. There's 37 states. That's a lot. That's, I mean, that's a lot. Now that I look at it, that is a lot. I mean, eventually I think everybody will be in this. I'm looking at the list. It's kind of interesting. So if I live in Colorado and my child's going to college in Maine, then I can see a therapist in Maine without a problem. Um, That's not going to be an issue. And so it would be kind of nice to find a therapist where they're in college and start doing virtual sessions even a year before, and they develop a relationship. And the reason why it's nice is because there's a live body in that state. (laughs) You know, there's a person that they could go see. There's a a go-to person in that state that is in charge of their mental health. And that could be a really helpful thing. So I, that would be something I would encourage. With the psychiatrist, I don't know how SIPAC involves psychiatrists. I'm not sure on that level, but you want to talk to your psychiatrist about can they prescribe virtually? And so my daughter wasn't seeing a therapist. She started with one and wasn't good at all. And she didn't want to give anyone else another chance. And I help guide her. So it wasn't crucial, but she was seeing a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And so that was a discussion too. You want to ask your, your prescribing provider can you prescribe virtually? Can you do Zoom calls? And can we like periodically see them in person? And so a lot of psychiatrists will see them on break. So see them on Christmas break or fall break and summer break. And so they have touch points where they see them in person, but then are, are willing to meet them on Zoom and prescribe that way. And so that can be a very important thing too, because if that's not the case, you're going to need to find a psychiatrist in the state where your child is going to be residing. Technically, their permanent residence is your house. And so a lot of times it's not much of an issue. The next thing you're going to want to look at is, is there a campus mental health policy or program? And what, what does it entail? And so I don't know about the UK or Canada, but I know in the United States, a lot of colleges, I would have to say most of them have like a wellness center and have 
a clinic of some sort. There, there's something. I don't know the depth of it, but there's typically some sort of emotional support available for students because they're very at risk at that time. It's a very risky time because they're just newly independent and college is like brings on a lot of stress for different reasons, not only academic, but just acclimating to being on your own and learning how to regulate yourself and, you know, balance your life and your partying, you know, there's all sorts of things going on in college. And so find out what that looks like. So reach out to the college, find out what does it entail if my child is having an issue and she needs help or he needs help, who do they contact? What does that look like? So that could be helpful. What is their, what is their policies on mental health? Do they have ways to accommodate? We're going to talk about that in a second. The next thing is helping them connect to roommates. And so in this day and age, a lot of places, you you know your roommate way before you're going to go to school, which, oh my gosh, I wish I had that. Back in the day with me and my social anxiety, you don't know who your roommate is. You go to school, you show up and there's your roommate and like it or not, you know, sink or swim. But now you get to fill out a questionnaire about what you like. At least this is from my experience working with kids in my practice and my daughter. And then you're matched with somebody and then you get their contact information and then you can like start chatting with them. And so by the time you're in college, you should really know them. However, some of our kids might need a little prompting for that. And so there might be some encouraging of, it might make you feel, now listen to my language, right? Not you should, but it might make you feel, you know, more comfortable if you got to know your roommate before you went to school. And so I wonder if it would be a good idea to reach out. And I know it's un- uncomfortable. What if you just messaged them? Or what if you, and you might have to coach them through that. I feel like I had to do that with my daughter. I can't remember, but I remember really encouraging her to reach out so that she has a good idea of who they are before she goes to school. Another one that I had kind of touched on just very briefly before is talking to the school about accommodations. And so like 504 plans and IEPs, there is a college level aspect to that where they can make accommodations for your child's anxiety or OCD. What are those? What are they able to do? Do they have a resource counselor or somebody who can help with that? I have been really impressed with some schools with the kids I've worked with in my practice that where they're able to meet one-on-one with somebody and have check-ins and accommodations. So that is possible. And it's good to meet with a school and talk about what those would look like for your child if they need that. We didn't do that with my daughter. She really didn't need it at that point, but it is good to know that that is available if you need it. The next thing, the next three things that I want to talk about are when they are there, but you really want to proactively do this before they go. How are you going to communicate? And it is actually really helpful to come up with a plan on how you'll communicate. And my daughter and I, like we had a discussion because I didn't want to be a nag and I didn't want to be distant. And so I asked her what, you know, and have these conversations you you don't have to let it organically happen. It is actually very, very comforting for them even to have a plan of how, how is our relationship and communication going to happen? And so I said to my daughter, I don't want to overwhelm you. I don't want to like bother you, but I also want to check in with you. And I want to make sure that you know that I'm thinking of you. So when do you want to talk? What would it look like? How often do you want to talk? And so we came up with this agreement initially. And then it kind of fell by the wayside, you know, as she got comfortable and she was doing well, our routine didn't, you know, it didn't need to be consistent because a lot of times she wouldn't call me back, you know, and I realized she's doing good. That's a good sign. Right. But maybe come up with a day that you're going to just touch base so that they know that no matter what, you know, every Sunday they're going to hear from, hear from you. 
do they want to FaceTime or do they want to text? Do they want to Zoom? Like what would be their comfort level? So coming up with a plan on communication on at least a consistent basis in the beginning is really helpful. The other thing is maybe a code word. So if they are unable to talk, but they don't want to say something, having a code word could be really helpful. This happened a couple of times with my daughter where like her roommates would be right there or, and I would have to be like, oh, are they right there? It's a hard time for you to talk. And if we had code word, it probably would have been easier. And so come up with a code word that is kind of not crazy and, but not so common that you'll miss it and have them have the the ability to use that code word so that you know, okay, this isn't a good time to talk. Because once they're in college, they're very rarely alone. They're surrounded by people and there may be topics and you may not know you're asking them, how's your OCD doing? Or did you talk to your doctor about your medication? And they have their friends right there. And they might be like, I don't know. And you're like, well, how could you not know? I mean, like, did you call them or no? And you're like, I'm not sure. And like, really, it's because they don't want to talk about it in front of these other people. But if they had a code word and they just said, yeah, you know, the sunset's really pretty here. And you're like, oh, that's our code word. Then you know, okay, she's not avoiding me. She's obviously around people. She doesn't want to discuss this. So that could be kind of helpful. The last thing I'd mention is as completely trite and simple this this is going to sound, it can be really helpful. Have a one to 10 scale. And so a one to 10 scale can be really helpful as far as where their stress level is or how well they're doing with their mental health. So the reason why that can be helpful, they may not be able to put in words how poorly they're doing. They may not be able to really communicate that to you or articulate it when they're really overwhelmed. And so if you have a one to 10 scale that you start to do, and you, you know, it's subjective, you take it with a grain of salt, but start doing this before they go to school. You know, like how's your week been? related to anxiety or OCD, one to 10. And and just be specific. It's one to, it's not a gauge on like, you having a good day or a bad day in general, like something bad happened to you. It's more of like your mental health. One to 10, how's your mental health? And if you get into the habit of doing that, one to 10, how's your mental health? Don't do it every day. That'd be so annoying. But like once a week or once every couple of weeks, one to 10, where are you at? You'll start to know what a five means to your kid. What does a nine mean to your kid? It's interesting because in my practice, I didn't like, you know, Suds, those are called sud levels, you know, like you take those with a grain of salt, but I found those interesting on, on different levels because it kind of gave you a perspective on people as well, because sometimes a five for someone would be like really horrible because they're always a one. They always want to be perfect. They always want to be happy. So if they say five, it's actually someone else's 10. And I've had other people where like when they're doing really well, they're like an eight. Because they're kind of like everything's the glass is half empty. Their perspective is empty. And so your child's five might be different than another child's five. Your child's nine might be different than another child's nine. But when you start to know what it is for them, so it wasn't the number in my practice, it was the kid. So if a particular kid told me an eight and they normally were a one, that would be very alarming for me versus a kid that was normally a 10 or 11, you know. And then they were an eight. That's actually a really good improvement. They're like doing much better. So you won't know that if you don't start using that before they go away. And you might say to them, you know, it's good to have a shorthand because you may not want to go into overall like why you're doing well or why you're not doing well. And so if we could just quickly do like a one to 10, like it could be a nice quick shorthand so that I know how you're doing. And then that way you're on the phone with them and maybe they've got roommates around or maybe they just don't want to talk about it. And you just say, one to 10, how are you doing? And you can start to see a pattern. Like maybe one Sunday they're like, I'm a, I'm a five. And then the next Sunday they're a six. And then they won't remember the number. Most of the time kids don't remember the number. But so you write it down and you start to see, 
Oh, now there are seven and there are eight. Now you see the train wreck starting to build up. You're like, they're not doing well. The other thing that I just thought of as I was saying that is make sure that your child, if they are willing and comfortable, sign a release for you to be able to talk to the therapist. Once they're 18, the therapist cannot talk to you due to HIPAA, but that can easily be overridden with them signing a release that they can communicate with you. So make sure that that's on file with the therapist, the school, and the psychiatrist, because you're going to want to talk to all those people. Obviously, if your child's not okay with that, that's fine, but you're going to want to make sure that you have some a release on file in all those areas, because even if your child wants you to talk to them, they will not be able to talk to them. So God forbid there's an emergency and your child is really not doing well, and they're not in a position mentally to be able to communicate that they want to give permission, it'll be too late. So it's always good. The minute my daughter turned 18, luckily her providers are very like on top of it and they sent her a release to sign. And her school actually makes us sign a release as well to even look in her grades and stuff. But if she was having an active relationship with a counselor at school, I would ask her if it would be okay for her to sign a release so that we can communicate in case of an emergency. So it's really important. But if you're starting to see that rev up, you know, it's a six and then it's a seven, then it's an eight, then you might want to say, can I communicate my concerns with your therapist? You know, and they may not be in a place where they can do it, but they are okay with you advocating for them. So super important. So those are, that's the gist of it. The hope is eventually they start to pedal and they start to pick up speed and they're able to balance and they're able to take off and be independent and do well. That is the goal. The important thing also is to let our kids know that it's not a race and that it is okay if it takes them longer than four years. And it's okay if they have to take a semester off. And it's good to preface that in the beginning so that we're kind of preemptively helping lower those expectations in case there's a, you know, a mental health issue to say, you know, we talk about college being a four-year program, but it doesn't mean you have to get through it in four years. You take your time. You do you. There's no rush. Life will be there for you. The important thing is that you take care of yourself and that you are able to find enjoyment in this program or where you're going. And that may, you know, if it means that you have to take a little break in between, that's okay too. And when you preface it with that, if it does happen, there won't be as, as much of an overwhelm. There might still be obviously an overwhelm, but there won't be this whole devastating, oh my gosh, now I'm not on the four-year track. My whole life is going to unravel. It's like, there's no time frame for life. It's not like high school, you know, and sometimes they, they go to college with the high school mentality of it's a four-year program. No, it's not really. It will take you four years to get through it. It might take you longer. The work is four years, but it doesn't mean it's a four-year journey. And so letting our kids know that and giving them that wiggle room to take a little break if they need to is really key. So I hope that you found this helpful. I hope that you're finding the podcast helpful in general. Don't forget to hit a star on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcasts. If you have a few extra minutes and you want to write a review, you know I greatly appreciate that as well. To show my gratitude, I always like to end my podcast reading a review if I have a new one, which I do. So I want to thank AR262, who wrote Vital Information. I was recommended this podcast from a friend therapist when I mentioned my daughter's anxiety. I went for a walk to listen to one episode, episode one. Well, that's going way back. Then extended to my walk to listen to two more. While I listened, I also took down notes. Not only is this information vital for my children, but for all children. I'll be using this with my students too. I'm a special ed teacher. Love the info. 
It's a must listen for parents. It's not just about mental health, but also keeping your kids safe. Well, and I appreciate you taking the time to leave a review and I appreciate you sharing it with your students. I'm glad that you found it valuable going way back to episode one. God knows what I sounded like in, <laughs> in that episode, but I appreciate it. So maybe if you're writing a review, I'll be reading yours next time. I do hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do and I'll be back again next Tuesday for another episode. Don't forget to sign up for the self-care series. It's free and it is good information. And you can sign up at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.